Exodus 34, and we'll start at verse 29. The radiant face of Moses. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. Verse 33, when Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Then jump over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not steadily look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Verse 12, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. 
Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Youth Church. That's your cue to head out. The rest of us, we are going to be sticking in that patch of 2 Corinthians 3. Um, As always, let's start by um, asking God to be with us and help us. Would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we do ask that 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 you would speak to us today by your spirit as we sit under your word together. Please expose to each of us our own thoughts about what it means to be gospelers, to be people willing to share the good news of Jesus with others. And where necessary, Father, renew and transform our convictions that we might not ever rely on our own competence as we speak, but rather that we would be bold in relying on your power to work through even our feeblest, fumbliest efforts. For your good and for the for your glory and for the good of many, we pray. Amen. Right, yeah, I'm not sure if you know this already. I'm pretty sure if you had a conversation with me, you might be aware. I'm a huge fan of what you would call robust discussions. Right, yeah? Do you know what I mean by robust discussions? It gets a bad rap, but what I mean when I say robust discussion, it means I like having serious talks on serious issues where there is an open exchange of ideas and opinions when the shared goal is to establish truth and right thinking, not just comfort or ease or preference. In practice, it means I love it when all parties are prepared to be pushed in their present thinking and to have the humility to realise in advance that their present ideas or thoughts might require some fine-tuning. They may be even completely wrong and people are willing to adjust their personal thoughts and opinions on an issue in line with the evidence, in line with reality, in line with a genuine quest for truth. I I love that. I'm a huge fan of it. I realize in advance that I don't have all the answers on every topic. And I really do like being stretched to consider evidence that that I was previously ignorant of. And let's be honest, there's plenty of stuff that I don't know. In fact, in the words of the famous philosopher Bart Simpson, what I don't know could fill a warehouse. What about you guys? Have you come to terms with this reality that you don't know what you don't know and that therefore you will need others at times to assist you, to challenge you, to persuade, even change what you think about topics to better align with reality and objective truth? Are you comfortable? Are you sort of, are you there already? I I sincerely hope you are, but I also want to present a warning to you at that that first step as well up front. I want, to, I want to make sure that you're aware of this and hopefully it goes without saying, don't believe everyone that tries to convince you or persuade you of something. Don't believe everything someone tries to persuade you of. You need to be discerning about the means people use to persuade you of ideas because not all ideas are equally valid. In fact, there are plenty of ways that people can get conned into thinking wrong things through persuasion that is actually manipulative at its core now if you've never seen this before i'll show you a quick little chart it comes up on your screen go home and look this up it's a list of logical fallacies 
It's a really cracking good list. Essentially, these are inappropriate, flawed or manipulative argument techniques that people often use and that as you read through, I'm convinced you will find that you have often used to persuade people or persuade someone of your position or your opinion on a hot topic. Dead set, go home and look at this. Look up logical fallacies. Have a read through some of those. They're too small to read there at the minute. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's very interesting, super challenging, good to be aware of. Now, I start this way because Paul is actually countering one of these logical fallacies in this section of his letter to the Corinthian church. As we've looked at it before, a large part of the issue Paul has had with the Christians in Corinth since he left them some years ago is that they've been conned and persuaded and manipulated by some fancy-pants preachers who are preaching a false gospel in contradiction to the gospel of Jesus on which Paul established the Christian church in Corinth in around about 50 AD. Now, we'll hear, we've, I've mentioned them already and we'll hear more of them later, these false preachers, later Paul will call them super apostles, verse, in chapters 11 and 12. But it's clear here in chapter 3 that their influence and their persuasion of the, Corinthian, of the Corinthian church is based on faulty pretenses. It's based on the logical fallacy that we call an appeal to authority. Now, before I explain what that is, look and see with me where it is in the text. Have a look at 2 Corinthians 3 verse 1. Paul starts this way. He says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? I want you to notice that, that idea of letters of recommendation. They are an example of a potential logical fallacy of appealing to an authority. Now, now I think you know this, by the way. In fact, have you ever needed a letter of recommendation from anyone? Maybe for a, a job interview or for a club membership or maybe for a housing rental? Those kind of examples are letters of recommendation. They are an appeal to authority at one level and it's asking someone else to vouch for your appropriateness for a position based on their personal experience. And it can be a useful, helpful, appropriate means of establishing your character, etc. So long as the person supplying the letter is being honest and has genuine insight in the questions, into the questions they're being asked to inform on. But, like all opinions, letters of recommendation are not all automatically equal or valid. And again, I think you've got a sense of this. If you're a boss and you're about to employ someone, or if you were about to rent a house to someone, it would be better that you speak to a former boss or landlord than to read a glowing letter from a person's personal friend about their suitability. Because a former boss or a landlord is in a better position to give you relevant insight, less likely to be weighed down by the relational baggage that might help them or cause them to skew information. Past performance is best, the best indicator of future performance in this context. That makes sense, doesn't it? See, Paul will make this case for the authenticity of his ministry among the Corinthian church in a moment. He'll point to the evidence and the results of his ministry among them in verses 2 and 3. We'll get there in a minute. But I want you to recognize up front again that there's some common, inappropriate appeals to authority, not based on evidence, but on other illegitimate foundations that you will come across often, and especially in relation to theology or Christianity or things of the Bible. The two most common 
appeals to authority, inappropriate appeals to authority, I think are these. The appeal to authority based on age, the appeal to authority based on expertise. Now, I've got those listed in your outline if you want to take some notes. Let me give you an example of each of these. The appeal to authority based on age. I remember an occasion in a Bible study where there, we were talking about evangelism and the idea of uh, Christians personally being responsible with the privilege and the task of sharing the gospel, being prepared to give a reason for the hope they have, yada, 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 you know, feeling the weight of that. And there was a person who spoke against someone sharing that idea and there was someone who said, piped up and went, no, 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 that's wrong. And their argument was not because this idea over here was unbiblical, but because the person disagreeing with them was 30 years older. <laughs> Her argument actually was, when you've lived a little longer, then you'll understand why that's inappropriate. That was it. That was the argument. Do you hear the problem with that argument? <laughs> it's an appeal to the authority of age, nothing more. I'm 30 years older, therefore, when you catch up, you'll understand, love. Which would mean, by extension, all you'd need to do is produce someone who's 80 years old who agreed with you, and then you'd be right again, of course. But that's ridiculous. Age ought be a good indicator of authority if it's combined with the wisdom to search God's word for truth. But if not, it's just another opinion, no matter how old the person is. You get that, don't you? A naked appeal to age is an illegitimate appeal to authority. You understand that, don't you? The other common appeal to authority is the appeal to I'll say supposed expertise, but expertise. In fact, you see this really common today in the, um, if, you, if you keep up with the sort of the culture wars, as they call them. I think the, the best example I've seen of this commonly is in the, the culture war, the arguments or the, or the debates about sex and gender. Every time I've seen someone stand up in a debate and publicly uh, sort of you know, push for traditional biological definitions of sex and gender, almost immediately the question will come, uh, excuse me, what's your educational qualification? Do you have a degree in sociology and gender studies? As if the truth can only be determined by or issued by someone with letters after their name. It's an inappropriate appeal to authority based on supposed expertise. And it's inappropriate because having a degree in a field of study does not automatically legitimise everything someone says about a field of study. You know that's true, don't you? I mean, here's a really cracking example. The before the Copernican Revolution in the 15th century, all the best astronomers, the leading experts in the field, believed and taught that the sun revolved around the earth. The earth was the fixed centre. Everyone except for Nicholas Copernicus, Copernicus rather, and though his views about the fact that the sun was in fact the centre of the solar system, though they were widely rejected at first, though even his books were banned, can you believe, eventually his theory won the day. Why? It wasn't because he got older and it wasn't because he just got more degrees to add to his resume. It was because he was right. <laughs> it's because what he was saying was true and demonstrably so. So for all the naysayers in the field of astronomy at the time, all they proved is that it is possible to be well-educated, well-liked, well-respected and wrong. This is Paul's argument with the super-apostles. 
From chapter 3, verse 1, they clearly have letters of recommendation. In fact, in chapter 11, verse 6, we'll see that they are even trained speakers. Uh, pretty common in the day to go to sort of rhetoric school, you know, learn how to be a persuasive speaker. The super apostles have got that. They even charge for their services in, 11, in chapter 11, verse 7, Paul insinuates. means they must be good if they're charging for it. And they've clearly been able to persuade the Corinthian church away from Paul and away from the gospel of grace through Jesus that Paul preached to them at the outset. The only problem is they're wrong. (laughs) See, for all their smooth talk and impressiveness and for all their popularity and education, their message and their influence on the Corinthian church does not align with the truth and the reality of God's revealed truth in Christ. They're operating on illegitimate appeals to authority. Now, we will deal with that more in chapter 11 and 12. But in contrast, look and see. Paul commends his ministry among the Corinthians, not based on letters of recommendation, not based on his age, not based on his educational qualifications, but based on the evidence of the actual effect that his ministry had on them which in turn does not so much authenticate Paul as personally authoritative, but rather authenticates that Jesus is the founding authority giver. In fact, have a look at this. Have a look at chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Read it with me. Paul continues. He says, You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Do you hear what Paul is saying here? What's Paul's letter of recommendation? It's his performance among them. It's his track record. It's the Corinthians themselves, which by extension does not glorify Paul. Rather, by extension, it's a testimony that his letter of recommendation or the letter of recommendation is from Christ himself, verse 3. Because the result of Paul's ministry among them was nothing short of the Holy Spirit transforming hearts and minds of many Corinthian locals to recognize now Jesus as Savior and King. That's Paul's letter of recommendation. The primary work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of all Christians. Not the hocus-pocus miracles of of healing or prosperity. Not that those can't happen, but it's not the primary common experience or guaranteed work of the Holy Spirit. No, no, it is the radically changed lives in line with God's Word. In fact, Paul has already explained this well earlier in a letter to the Corinthian church. Have a look at this. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. Don't flick there, it'll come up on the screen. 1 Corinthians 2, 5. He's already explained this a little bit to him. When he says to them, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. What was the demonstration of the Spirit's power in verse 4? 
It's not the mir- in context. There's no way that it's the it's miracles and wonders that people often chase today. There's no way that it was physical, immediate magic moments. No, no. The spirit, the demonstration of the spirit's power, was that Paul preached what seemed like a foolish, weak gospel, a crucified Messiah. That's ridiculous. And people heard it, and people understood the wisdom and the power of God for salvation through a crucified Messiah. It's far more impressive. (laughs) That's far more necessary miracle that smacks of more authority and authenticity than an early birth date or a degree from RU, Rome University. This is the basis for Paul's authority. Not letters of recommendation written with ink. Not even letters written on stone tablets, firstly, three, a clear reference to Moses. We'll pick up on that in a minute. But testimonies on human hearts written by the Holy Spirit. So Paul's not boasting here. It's not because of his own brilliance that some of the Corinthians were transformed by the Holy Spirit to receive Jesus as Saviour and King. No, it was based on... It was not based on Paul's merit, not on his persuasion, not on his giftedness. In fact, Paul realizes he was nothing. Have a look at the first half of verse 5 again. He says, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our confidence comes from Christ. Oh, sorry, comes from God. See, see, here is the secret to Paul's ministry. Here's why power and weakness, if you like, is not just the title of our sermon series, but really a theme of Paul's ministry. It's because in recognising that he's nothing, in recognising that he's not brilliant, he's not impressive, he's not even an accomplished or accredited speaker, it's in recognising that the gospel he preaches sounds weak and foolish to the world's natural wisdom. It's in recognising and accepting those things as true that Paul then necessarily leans into and relies solely on God's power to work through him despite his weakness. And in so doing, it is God who shows himself enormously powerful because he can use even weak, foolish, unimpressive things of the world like Paul, like a crucified Messiah and through these, despite these, reveal and flex his wisdom and his power to achieve his ends. Now friends, do you believe that? And I mean, really, do you believe that is true? That it is through weak and foolish and meagre things that God best flexes his power and his wisdom? Do you believe that? I'm going to come back and ask you that question in a minute. First, I want to look at the, next, the rest of this section in, in 2 Corinthians 3. I want to look at that chunk from verse 7 through to 18 as Paul sort of talks about ministries and glories and covenants and veils lifted. What, what does all that mean? Well, here's where Paul picks up on his previous reference to Moses, to letters carved on stone tablets. Basically, what Paul is doing, he's further grounding the authority and the authenticity of his ministry among them, present relational difficulties included. And he's doing that by betting it in the historical context of Moses and the Exodus, well known to the Jews in Corinth. In fact, I want you, as we read through these things again, or just look through that little section there, seven through to sort of, or through the end of the chapter. Notice the terms that he uses here as he explains the difference between the old and the new covenant. 
or the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law, or the ministry of death, or the ministry of corruption versus the ministry of righteousness. Essentially, it's all a comparison between the glory of Moses and the law in the Old Testament versus the glory of Jesus and the gospel through the New Testament. Now, we've just finished a series on Exodus. That's really helpful. <laughs> Let me ask you a couple of questions. Was the ministry of Moses in Exodus glorious? Yes. What did it reveal to Israel and what did it give to Israel? Well, it revealed God's holiness. It revealed Israel's sin. It gave them God's law by which they might respond to his grace and it gave them the sacrificial system by which they might be reconciled to him, that they might live in a kind of peace with him. What did it result in though? What did Moses' ministry and the law result in? Well, at its very end, it resulted in Israel's inability to live in perfect peace with God. It revealed or resulted in Israel's inability to fulfill the covenant or to realize God's promise to bless all nations through them. But hang on, was it glorious? Yes. Yes, even Moses' face shone with a residual glory after he received these things, after he stood in God's presence. Now, we didn't cover it in Exodus, so it's helpful to do it now. That little section that Caro read out for us, Exodus 34, 29 to 35, read it again later. But essentially, what is being said here is, what Paul's referring to here is, the experience of Moses receiving the law and the tabernacle from God was so significant and so glorious that even his face shone after he had entered in God's presence. His face shone so bright that the, he had to put a veil over his face when he came back to camp because his face was too radiant for the Israelites to look at. That's some serious glory there. <laughs> and now Paul refers to this as the ministry that brought death. Verse 7. And he's not for a second trying to diss Moses or suggest it was inglorious. What's going on here? What's Paul's point then? Here's Paul's point. If Moses' ministry can be considered glorious, and it ought be, even though it effectively brought death because all it did was underline Israel's inability to be at perfect peace with God, then how much more glorious is the gospel of Jesus? How much more glorious is the law of the Spirit written on hearts, not on stone? How much more glorious is the ministry that brings lasting, deep-seated change and perfect peace with God that actually gives the opportunity for God's promise to bless the, all the nations through Israel to be manifest as the gospel of Jesus spreads out from the Mideast, from Jerusalem to the edges of the earth? How much more glorious is that? Unimaginably more glorious. It's kind of like the difference between the glory of the moon, if you like, and the glory of the sun. Is the moon glorious when you look at it in the midnight sky? 100%. It's magnificent. But it's reflected glory. In fact, that we can see it, and that we can see the beauty of the moon at night, underlines an even greater marvel of glory, the source of the light that illuminates the moon. Because you know what happens when the sun rises? The moon literally pales into insignificance by comparison. 
So it is when you compare Moses and the law to Jesus and the gospel. The ministry of Moses and God's dealing with Israel through the law, through the tabernacle, were gloriously merciful. But like the moon, they pale into insignificance by comparison to the ministry of Jesus and God's invitation to the world through him, who is the Son. You saw that coming, didn't you? It's wonderfully poetic though, isn't it? What is the source of the glory of the Old Testament? It is the Son, who then we see raised. Now, how do we apply this, folks? What do we do with this here and now? I just, want to, I just want to hone in on one specific application for us, if you like. And we've mentioned it already a few times. It is that personal boldness in evangelism. In fact, this is that, did you realize this is Paul's direct application in the text himself? Have a look at verse 12. What does he say in verse 12? He says, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. See, Paul's underlining here why he's so bold towards the Corinthian church, why he's willing to have robust discussions with them. Why he's willing to write difficult letters, have painful visits and not just give up on them. It's because he's fully convinced that the gospel of Jesus is the full radiance of God's glory. And he's not prepared to let others manipulate or con the Corinthians off this truth. To go back to a lesser glory or to cast their eyes to the moon rather than the sun. And so he's bold. He's really bold. Let me ask you again, are you likewise convinced of the gospel? Do you share Paul's gospel conviction that the power and the effectiveness of the gospel to change people's hearts and minds to trust Jesus does not depend on your competency or your authority, but on God's power through your weakness as you dare to open your mouth and share the gospel, stumbling though it may be, to tell others of the awesomeness of God and his grace to forgive and save through Jesus. Do you really believe that? You should. <laughs> you should. You must. In fact, let me ask it this way. If you're here already and you're a Christian, do you credit your conversion to the brilliance of the person who first shared the gospel with you? Is that who you look to? That would be a tragic mistake if you did. Do you not instead credit your conversion and the amazing transformation of your mind and your heart to God himself by his spirit? As you became fully persuaded that the Bible is his authoritative word, that Jesus really did rise from the dead, that he really does have the authority to offer forgiveness and eternal life to all who trust in him, that although you are a helpless, hopeless sinner, Jesus is a merciful saviour and king. He's your merciful saviour and king. And is it not God's spirit that continues to conform you to Christ's image? That's what Paul's talking about there in verse 18. And we who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Who is it that conforms you to Christ's image? By helping you to, well, increasingly obey his word and struggle against the sins that still beset you. Who is that? Is that to your credit? Is that to the person who told you the gospel's credit? Or is it to God's credit? 
Is that not the common experience of every genuine Christian person? An overwhelming realization that God's first movement is towards you in Jesus and it's his ongoing grace that keeps you. It ought be. It's the clear and consistent message of God's word. And because it's this way, because it is ultimately God's work that saves people from start to finish, you can be and you ought be just as bold as Paul in sharing the gospel. So here's the, bold, here's the basis for boldness, folks. It's the firm conviction that God's kindness, his mercy, his goodness, his, his power both far exceeds and is far more fundamental in personal evangelism than your competence or skill in preaching the gospel. Again, do you believe that? <laughs> and what would it look like if you did? Let me give you a quick personal example. When I first became a Christian, when God undeniably turned my life upside down, which in actual effect was right side up, I quickly became aware of how desperate the need of my friends to hear that same life-changing news was. I found myself as one of the only Christians within Kui of these guys. And though I knew I didn't have all the answers, I knew I couldn't keep silent on sharing Jesus. One of my best mates at the time, a fellow teacher, I remember sharing the gospel with Gav in a sort of funny way. It was awkward, it was stumbling, it was not clear. In the end, I ended up saying to him, because he was like, what the heck are you on about? And I said, Gav... Here's my deal. I just I can't not want to share this with you because I don't want you to look at me on that last day and say, you mongrel, why didn't you tell me? That was the conviction that I had. I couldn't shake. I said that. That was pretty much a verbatim quote to him. Gav, I don't want you to look. If Christ returns and I'm taken and you're left, I don't want you to look at me and say, you mongrel, what were you sitting on? You didn't, you didn't tell me this? Now, is Gav a Christian now? No. I invite him to things all the time. He often tells me he's busy before I tell him the time of the date of anything. And then we have a chuckle. <laughs> I text him last night and said, hey, Gav, you got to run in my sermon tomorrow. For good or ill, you'll have to be there to find out. <laughs> <laughs> he's not a Christian. We don't hang out as regular as we once did. But should the day come when God removes the veil, he's got a clear and repeated invitation to come and hear the gospel. And I pray for the opportunity. I pray for that day. My question is, do you have friends or family who you've never tried to speak to about Jesus? Or do you have workmates or regular contacts that don't even know that you're a Christian? Are there people who could justifiably look to you on that last day when Christ returns and though they will not be able to lay blame on you outright, could they not feel cheated, robbed or hard done by because you'd never told them about Jesus and the invitation to eternal life, to the freedom that Paul speaks about in verse 17 that the gospel represents. Now I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty. I'm saying that to motivate you. I'm saying that to encourage you because the good news is Jesus hasn't come back yet. There's still time. And his patience means salvation. This is what Peter wrote, 2 Peter 3. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. The fact that Jesus hasn't come back yet is not because he's dilly-dallying it's because he is slow and he is patient, wanting more people to hear the news of salvation. 
So don't feel guilty for the fact you've never opened your mouth. There's still time. There's still time to speak. In fact, this time of year, there are several opportunities to do so. Let me give you a couple of examples. You've already seen these. Let me join the dots a little bit for you here. The Combined Churches Carols events coming up. Here's the promo again if you didn't see it earlier. Who are you inviting? Who can you invite and attend along with in order that you might kick off a conversation about the real meaning of Christmas? That is a no-brainer. That is an easy in. Or what about our own Christmas celebration service here? Who are you inviting to come along that they might hear the gift of self-forgetfulness? That's an odd gift. I'm always trying to be a little bit edgy, you know. What the heck's that mean? Who are you inviting along? Or what about our next session of Jesus Seriously? We just finished a session of Jesus Seriously. Can I tell you that over this year, we've had more than 40 people come to Jesus Seriously. 27 of those people have been either very new or not yet Christians. And out of those, 11 people have a new expression of faith in Christ. That's spectacular good news, isn't it? 11 people for whom God has removed the veil so that they don't see this law, I must do, otherwise God will smite. No, they see the grace of God and the forgiveness through sins, yeah, sins paid in full by Jesus' death. Praise God. <laughs> That's enormous. And so I want to encourage you, folks. This is, this, is the, this is the rubber hits the road time. I want to encourage you now. In fact, I've even left space on your outline. Write down the name of a friend who you know who needs to hear the gospel and pray for them. Or fill out a Care and Connect card. And, and let us be, as a staff team, joining you in praying for a friend that you know needs to hear the gospel. And then don't wait for the opportunity to share the gospel. Be bold and loving enough to create the opportunity to share the gospel. Those opportunities are endless. You want to know how to start that conversation? It starts like this. Hey, I just realized I've never actually asked you what you think about Christmas. I've never actually asked you what you think about the Bible. I've never asked you what you think about Jesus. Have you? You know, you know I'm a Christian. What do you think about that? There's the end. And then prayerfully see where that leads you, not trusting in your own competence, but in your weakness. Trusting in the power of God through you. Friends, that's the basis for boldness. That's what we need to be focused on god saves through weak pitiful foolish people like us through a weak foolish sounding message of a christ a crucified christ and i'm not sure about you but i'm convinced that's the wisdom and the power of god let's pray heavenly father we thank you that it is your power that saves that you are kind and merciful beyond our ability to recognize and that you invite us to be proclaimers, to be heralds of this good news and that despite our weakness that you would use us to demonstrate your wisdom and power that many more people would meet Jesus and trust him as saviour and king. We pray it for the good of many and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.